Today's sermon comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world, a city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, my friends. It's a joy to be with you in worship. I have a few prefatory remarks about this sermon. You'll notice that the title is A Word for Our Polarized Times. It's no secret to any of us that our culture, politically, socially, culturally speaking, seems rather polarized. This week alone had its own enough headlines and feelings uh, on either side to be uh, something that's quite troubling for us. And quite frankly, like you, I would like to see some of our polarization stop, some unity increase. But more importantly, I'd like to think with you today about what it means to be a person of the kingdom of God, a Christian, someone committed to the gospel in a, in a world that is otherwise divided. What, what does it mean to think about these things with Christ? I'm convinced that unity is actually something that we cannot achieve here for our nation, and maybe it's not even the thing that we're called to. I ask that you listen gracefully and openly. I wish not to tell you how to vote. I have opinions. You have opinions. We can talk about those offline I just wish for us all to open our hearts and minds with an imagination towards being single-mindedly focused on God and God's kingdom, especially as we walk troubled waters, culturally speaking. Let us pray. Creator God, we are thankful for the life that you have given us. And we confess that we haven't always treated that life well. Through waywardness and unwisdom and downright sin, humanity has endeavored to move itself away from your love. But it is the deep and abiding faith that we have to confess that your Son, Jesus Christ, stepped into the void and reconciled us to you. And God, we who have been reconciled have been looking toward Christ for the direction, and Christ has been cultivating in us 
a desire for your kingdom first. Thank you. As such, we know that and believe that you have sent your Holy Spirit as a counselor and friend to us to help us along this kingdom pathway, to cultivate us into a community of care. God, send your spirit now for you and I know that without you, I can do nothing. So send your spirit that these profound words from the great Sermon on the Mount, that they may transform our lives and thus transform the world wherever we go. It is in the matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray, and all God's people say with one voice, amen. <clears throat> I have a dear friend whose mother died when he was just a teenager. To call that an emotional scar doesn't quite get to it. It's a wound I don't think will ever fully heal. A lot of our friendship was spent late nights talking about God, theology, friendship, and loss. And every so often, specifically, the pain of the loss of his mother popped up. It made him no longer feel a sense of home anymore. It made him feel adrift and untethered. And sometimes, as a minister, I would try to speak in a way that I thought would help him. And so, one such time, I thought I had a good question. I asked my friend, I said, <clears throat> tell me something about your mom, something she taught you that no one else ever taught you. To. What was unique? He's a quiet, introspective sort of guy, so he looked away, and he had a, a guttural noise that let me know he liked the question. It sounded like this. <clears throat> we sat in the silence for a while, he thought ran through the Rolodex of memories in his mind, and finally he smiled. He had something he wanted to share with me, and I said, you got something? He said that when he was a little boy, he was going to his friend's house to play with model airplanes, and he was real excited, but he always told his mom, I love you, always gave her a hug at the door, and as he turned to open the door with his planes to go to his friend's house, his mom called his name out one time and said, hold on, don't forget who you are, and whose you are. This became, became the thing she started saying to him every time he left or would go be away from the family. Hun, don't forget who you are, and don't forget whose you are. Don't forget that you're my son. Don't forget your values. Don't forget how your dad and I have taught you to behave. Don't forget that you represent us. Don't forget whose you are. Don't forget that you belong to this family and belong to your brothers. Don't forget, son, that you belong to God. It's a powerful thing to remind somebody who's going to go out into the world with influences you can't imagine, when temptations and maybe other points of view might, might lurk in. Don't forget who you are and whose you are. Remembering who you are can be a very powerful thing. That's why coaches who are leading their team against a great foe often give those great speeches in locker rooms reminding the team, don't forget who you are, boys, to inspire some confidence and courage in the team. Yes, we're the champions. It's why mothers have taken many young boys facing some shame of trouble and reminded them that no matter what, I am your mom, 
no matter what, you'll always be in my love. Jesus reminds the people of God exactly who they are. Remember, you are the salt of the earth. Don't forget, you are the light of the world. This text has a lot of things going on in it, but for our purposes today, I'm going to focus on these two identifying markers of the people of God because they're profound. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Well, that's a well-worn phrase. We use it today. It's not uncommon for you to be talking to a friend about somebody else. You're probably singing their praises, lauding them to a friend, and you say, oh, you'll like him. He's a real salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. What does that mean? Typically, it means probably they're honest, hardworking, not ostentatious, you know, like a real good quality person you can trust. Is that all it's supposed to mean? What does it mean for Jesus to remind the people of God that they're supposed to have the quality of salt? I submit to you that there's at least one thing that you and I think of about salt that the ancient people would have thought about salt, and that one thing is taste, yes. Salt is some sort of um, flavor enhancer, but for the ancient mind, salt was far, far more important. In a world without refrigeration, salt was a high commodity because it could preserve food. You put enough salt on fish or meat, and it can last for a period of time. And that's profoundly important when you live in an agrarian society such as theirs, and a pre-modern, pre-industrial one to boot. For the Hebrew mind, salt did one better. If you know anything about how salt acts on a piece of meat, it draws the moisture out, including blood. And so salt on some meat can help purify that which would be considered unclean to the Hebrew mindset. Yes, salt would have been a profound thing to the Hebrew mindset. And Jesus tells people of God, you are the salt of the world. Reminding them that if they've lost their saltiness, which, by the way, cannot actually happen, but if they lost that which makes them distinctive, they will have no longer any use. Some suggest that this is meant to tell the people of God that if you forget the covenant and forget the faithfulness to the covenant, if you don't live up to the calling that you have, if you lose your zeal for God, then you won't really have an impact. Then he moves forward. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. For those of you who come from rural places, you know this to be true. Or if you've ever been flying at night um, over a big lake or ocean and come to see some big city lit up, you know that to be true. A city on a hill in darkness absolutely becomes a beacon. I wonder if when I say these phrases, light of the world, city on a hill, though, I wonder if you hear not just Scripture, but maybe get a sense of America. It's true. Many American politicians have, have co-opted the Scriptures about the people of God to apply it to America's own self-identity. I can tell you off the top of my head, no less than three presidents who have called and claimed America as a shining city on a hill. My beloved Abraham Lincoln, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and a disciple of Christ, 
Ronald Reagan. Both sides of the aisle have found this image to be so powerful and so enduring that they've claimed it for the American ethos and dream. Yet this is problematic because Jesus is speaking about a people of God here. He's not speaking of a, of a nation state or statecraft or even democracies or systems of government. He's speaking of a covenanted people who are to, to not just have their own light, but represent the light that's been given to them, and thus be hope for those who are in dark places. I'll tell you the reason why I think that America got a little bit of this in our DNA. <clears throat> it's all in the subtext. The first Europeans who made settlements in North America did so, we are taught, for, for the perspective of religious liberty. A lot of these people we call the Puritans, and they came to establish almost idyllic, almost utopic society here in America. They wanted to truly be a city shining on a hill. They followed a certain kind of theology that's out of fashion today, a certain eschatology. That's a $10 word for the, the end of one age and perhaps the beginning of the next. We think about it when we think about when Jesus comes again. The kind of eschatology they thought about and practiced was this thing called post-millennialism. I know, lots of big words. You can forget about them. Just get the point. Here was the thought of post-millennialism redux. The idea was that society would get better and better and better and better and better and better and improve, 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 until the world was good enough to receive Jesus again. The Puritans came and established settlements of high ideals to be like a city shining on a hill, so to speak. This is why they were severe against sin. And you can read about that in a great American novel, the Scarlet Letter. Why is it so important to shame people with sin? Because we've got to rid our society of sin so Jesus would come live with us again. Now, I think that idea, whether stated or unstated, consciously or subconsciously known, has been with us since our founding. Even though when we wrote the Constitution, it changed, and even though our society has changed, and even though it's much more diverse, it is still here confusing the waters. Just as an aside, post-millennial eschatology was the most prominent version of eschatology right up until a couple of events. World War I, World War II, and a Great Depression. It was at those points in history when it seems like people thought, yeah, society isn't getting better and better and better. Church, let me be plain today. If we're to truly be the Christian church, if we want to really be what it means to be disciples of Christ, if we want to be and follow the New Testament people of God, it means that we need to be the salt of the earth and commit to being God's light in a dark world. It means that we are the ones who are trying to represent what it is of God that the world needs. It means that we need to truly live and promote the rule and reign of God. It means that we need to be single-mindedly focused and sold out for a kingdom that is not of this world. 
It means that we need to be a people who have not only received grace, but have given grace freely. It means that we have a hope for human flourishing and beyond human flourishing. It means that we seek salvation and God's restoration for all things. Now, these should speak to us. These things should remind us of who we are in polarized times. For we live, as I said a moment ago, in profoundly polarized times. I have read in no less than three stellar periodicals studies of the American population and the amount of people who have said that they can imagine a civil war in their lifetime is as high as it's ever been since we've actually had a civil war. That ought to scare you. It scares me. What's more troubling, though, at least for my small brain to wrap its head around, is I know, everyone I know feels the polarization that is out there. Everyone I know feels it. Everyone I know is bothered by it. I know there are some people out there somewhere who probably like it, but I don't know those people. The people I know don't like it. And thirdly, everybody I know thinks they're not contributing to the polarization. My friends, those three things cannot exist together. By logic, therefore, you ought to be wondering if you are. It's made me wonder all week, am I contributing to it? That's good self-work, by the way. That's a good thing to think about this week for yourself. But this passage goes deeper for me. It should remind us as Christians, as people who are trying to be salt of the earth and the light of the world for God, it should remind us that our nation's unity as much as we may want it, it is not our primary hope, and it cannot be the primary hope for God's people. Not if you read carefully elsewhere, as, let's say, Philippians, where St. Paul tells the church, a highly patriotic church, citizens of Rome, no less, that their real citizenship is in, I must say it, you fill in the blank, your citizenship, Christian, is in. That means you live where you live, but you take your morals and your customs and your mores, you take your cues from somewhere else. Or if you read in First Peter, as Peter writes to another church and tells them that they are nothing else than resident aliens. What's that mean? You're a resident. You live here. You're an alien. You don't come from here. It's rather like being a, a colonial person. I bet you everybody who lived in the English colonies was quite aware they weren't in England. All they had to do was look out into the wilderness and find Native Americans. They were no longer in England, yet they lived by English law and custom and spoke English and wore English clothes. Peter says it just like Paul. You are living here. You are here, but you are not of here. Friends, please hear me. As people of God, our concern must be different than the concerns of the wider world. We are supposed to be, as a church, an alternative polity. 
an alternative community, a different sort of people than the wider world around us. Some people have even called it the body of Christ. We live here, but we're not of here. Let me articulate some of the differences, the way that I think salt of the earth people and light of the world people, in terms of the way they think about the discomforting times we live in, when compared to, I would say, the garden variety response. Our countrymen fear polarization, we know this, and so the great appeal from sensible-minded people is this, civility. I was at a coffee shop this week, awaiting one of our members and reading a book. I always tell you guys, be careful what you say in public because preachers are out there listening. There's two middle-aged gals, and they were arguing. It was the day after the State of the Union address, and they were arguing about it. One of them said President Trump manipulated people. The other said Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, acted below her station. They both agreed that people on both sides of the aisle acted less than they should, but one lady had enough of the disagreement, slammed down her coffee and said, why can't we go back to living in an age of civility? I giggled for a moment. So I always think it's funny how we always think everything was better. I'm sure there are people who didn't find yesteryear better, but I also thought, yeah, she's right. I, I wish there was more civility. That was, gosh, why can't we just talk to each other, right? But the more I thought about it through the week, I realized that civility is the hallmark of a polite society that has no other hope than the here and the now. It's got no greater hope than human flourishing right here, right now, and that there's nothing beyond it or transcending it, and certainly nothing eternal about it. Salt of the earth people, light of the world people, people amongst God's kingdom, however, well, we're called to more than civility because we're called to grace. Grace is that which undergirds civility. It is primary to civility. Civility on its own is, is sort of flat, and it, it concerns itself with what is nice. But grace is deeper than that, people of God. Don't you agree? Grace isn't about being nice. Grace has the power to transform the world. It seeks not only to be understood. Grace seeks to understand it doesn't seek to otherize people or put them in silos with labels that are other than you. Grace seeks to deeply and radically understand, to identify with the other. How did God identify with you, sinner? By becoming you, by taking on flesh, being born of mammalian birth, by dying. That's more than walking a mile in another man's shoes. Grace has the power to transform the world. It's better than nice. All of us remember that terrible event that happened in Amish country where a man who had his own problems walked into a schoolhouse and shot it up. We all mourn because we don't need more of this in the world. It's unspeakably evil. And it's the Amish. 
They have withdrawn from our society, and our society went in on them, guns blazing. But I think more of us were blown away, even Christians, by their response. Within the hour, offering forgiveness, grace, and welcome to the murderer. That's something that isn't civil. That's grace. A few months ago, I told you about the African-American man. His name escapes me in the moment. It's not on my paper. Who befriended a white supremacist in a bar one evening. And over a long and arduous friendship, he won the Ku Klux Klan member over, so much so that his friend gave up his hat and gave up his robe. And this man, this African-American brother in Christ, has made a career out of collecting hoods because he's gotten to know the other. Grace is not nice, but it can transform the world. If I think about the motivations of salt of the earth people and light of the world people and the motivations of your garden variety person in the world, I see them being different as well. See, it's easy for us to slip into the mundane, to, to take a look at things only from our vantage point, to consider only our opinion, to talk to our tribes, focus on the flattened here and now only interests. When we do, we find ourselves walking right into polarized places all the while telling everyone else we're not like that. I was looking at Facebook this week as penance for all my sins. And this was the day after the National Prayer Breakfast incidents. Oh, I'm not going to tell you my opinions on these things. I have them, you have them. We can talk offline. It's not my place here. My place is to say I saw people reeling and fighting over it. As if, you know, that's a forum for communication. People don't talk to, they talk at and past each other. And then I saw the the umpteenth person that I've ever seen begin a sentence this way on Facebook. (sighs) I don't normally say things like this on here, but I finally had enough of it, and now I have to tell you what I think. Which I think is hilarious. Because, like, I I have that every week, another person who doesn't normally do this, who's now going to give a reasonable argument for something, and then I love to read their feed below it. And it's just maddening at how graceless it all is. I thought to myself, to my friend who I saw write this, brother, you're not winning an audience. You're not uniting anyone. Salt and light folks are not motivated by winning. Salt of the earth people are not motivated by being right and seeing others be wrong. Kingdom seekers are motivated by something else. They're motivated by this altar, by the table of our Lord. You see, it's there when we don't, we don't own anything. It's there where there's a host named Christ who invites us to come. And there's room for everyone. 
I don't care if you're on the right or the left. We don't care what color your skin is. We don't care what socioeconomic background you have or what adjective you use before the word Christian or who you love or if you're able-embodied or happen to be disabled, if you can't hardly remember the words or if you remember the words in Spanish and Chinese at the same time. There's space for you at the table, friends. People who are committed to God say, we got to make room for everybody, and we're going to start there. We're going to start by the fact that we are all brought here by the shared blood of Jesus Christ. And from there, we get our social cue. We realize we have a mission then, that we go leave these doors, and we don't worry about lunch so much. We worry about making disciples of nations. We worry about inviting people to come and see We worry about taking care of orphans. We worry about welcoming in the stranger and the alien in our midst. We worry about healing the sick. We worry about loving people. We realize when we're at the table that each and every single one of us is a concrete, irreversible, beautiful person, and we will all die, so we better take the opportunity to love each other while we have it. And that's why we're having communion now. And that's why we'll gather at the table now. And I know it's not the way we normally do things. But our world is broken and we're not going to fix it. You're not fixing it. The best thing you can do is to be the salt of the earth people, the light of the world people. The best thing you can do is be transformed people, to be a people united around Christ here and take that with you where you go.